I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, immigration has a long history. So does immigration policy. If you want to contrast 2018 presidential rhetoric about immigrants, you don't need to go to Obama or Reagan or Bush or Carter. You can go to Grover Cleveland. Then why separating children from families is going to have lasting health effects. The idea that you can simply feed and clothe a child without giving them that nurture and caregiving and that's adequate is frankly false and that's been demonstrated through studies. Plus, how fiction helps spark the idea that maybe everyone has human rights. People identified through the novel with people they were never going to meet. And I think this is a very important process of learning that everybody is psychologically similar. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In May, after the Trump administration started separating moms and dads from their kids at the southern border, but before it got a lot of media attention, the president's chief of staff, John Kelly, said that such separation would be, in his words, a tough deterrent. In that same interview with NPR, he explained why deterrence was needed. And the key word here is assimilation. Let me step back. And, and tell you that the vast majority of the people that move illegally into the United States are not bad people. They're not criminals, they're not MS-13. But they're also not people that would easily assimilate into the United States. They're uh, overwhelmingly rural people. In the countries they come from, fourth, fifth, sixth grade educations are kind of the norm. Uh, they're coming here for a reason, and I sympathize with the reason. But the laws are the laws. And I should say that in the full transcript of the interview, he says, these people, quote, don't speak English, they don't integrate well, they don't have skills. That argument that these are not people who would assimilate well, it's been made for a long time. Indeed, it's why we have an immigration system, a system so massive and expensive you'd think it's always been around. But it hasn't. Just over a hundred years ago, a major commission came out with a slate of recommendations that essentially created the immigration system as we know it today, a system that decided to limit immigration through quotas. It was a commission created by President Teddy Roosevelt, who had some concerns about the large numbers of Eastern and Southern Europeans, Jews, Slavs, Italians, who had been coming in to the country. He was very concerned about this thing that folks call race suicide, right? That white Anglo-Saxon Protestant women's birth rate had been falling since 1790, basically. Whereas new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe had high birth rates. Catherine Benton Cohen is the author of Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy. And she says the original goal of immigration had been to populate this enormous country. And the debate has been, who shall we people it with? The Dillingham Commission, which was started in 1907 and headed up by Senator William Dillingham of Vermont, but stocked with lots of academic experts, decided to cast immigration not as a question or a discussion or a solution, but as a problem. And it wasn't just the commission that saw immigration as a problem. San Francisco had been hotly debating whether to segregate Japanese and white children in schools. A few decades before, in 1882, the Chinese had essentially been barred from entering the country. But before 1882 and the Chinese Exclusion Act, it's important to remember this. It took almost nothing to get into America. 
Though there had been clear discrimination against the Irish, not one federal law was passed restricting them from coming here. Indeed, the vast and the costly bureaucracy that now exists and that ramps up as our enforcement gets tougher, that didn't exist for the first hundred plus years of America's history. The quota system absolutely required a labyrinthine system of regulation that far exceeded anything previous, including that you got your visas in the quota era from your consulate, from the U.S. consulate overseas. So it actually spread the immigration bureaucracy-like tentacles into other countries. Ironically, for those coming across our southern and northern borders, the federal government essentially had an open-door policy for a long, long time. The United States did not even bother counting overland immigrants, so, you know, land migrants who were crossing land borders, until 1908. So to put that into context, my grandmother was five years old <laughs> in 1908, and I'm not terribly ancient. The Border Patrol was not created until 1924. My grandmother was married by then, right? So this is literally just two generations away. So as we've all watched child separations take place over the last several weeks, wondering how little children can possibly navigate without the people that they love, we are living with the legacy of a world that the Dillingham Commission helped create. But when I asked Catherine Benton-Cohen, who's also an associate professor of history at Georgetown University, if we've ever seen anything before that looks like this, it was a hard issue to grapple with. It is a very emotional question. And um, historians like to say that we're kind of allergic to making proclamations about the present day. Um, I'm not an expert on um, the history of children in migration, which is actually a kind of discrete scholarly topic. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the Dillingham Commission and the kinds of recommendations it made and the kinds of policies that people envision with respect to families, there was actually much more of an emphasis on wanting family migration as opposed to opposing it. And that's one thing that sort of strikes me here is, for example, the Dillingham Commission considered recommending, or it did recommend, barring single men from entry. Um, it ended up not doing that. Uh, the federal government did not pass a law like that. But that came out of the belief that assimilation was best achieved by families, hmm. right? That, in fact, one of the threats that new immigrants, and that's what folks called those from Eastern and Southern Europe in the from the 1880s to the 1920s, those were the so-called new immigrants, right. that new immigrants were a threat in part because uh, many of those national groups were mostly male, the immigrants who came. In fact, the exception were Eastern European Jews, right, because they were fleeing violence and, and persecution. And they came as families, but Slavs and Italians and, and, and uh, other Southern Europeans, those immigration streams were majority male. And that in itself was seen as a problem hmm. uh, by policymakers and by their sort of neighbors and civic leaders, because they believed that families were most likely to stay and assimilate. And they saw, in fact, women as kind of agents of assimilation. Mm -hmm. um, so in that respect, this emphasis on breaking up families is actually quite different than the historical origins of immigration policy with respect to assimilation. If you were, let's say, arriving on a ship to Ellis Island before 1900, what did it take? What did you have to do? What did you have to show? And what was done to you to get into this country if you wanted to, like, 
be American, work in America. Well, first of all, you only could have come to Ellis Island for about eight years before uh, 1900. Ellis Island, which we think is this kind of like timeless emblem of United States immigration history, I like to say is literally a monument to federal immigration enforcement. But even at the height of the inspections at Ellis Island, they lasted around a minute unless you failed a test. And in spite of the intense anxiety that they produced and in the many, many hundreds, maybe thousands of memoirs of immigrants or their children where they talk about the experience of Ellis Island, something like 98% of people passed. My husband's grandfather uh, was ill when he arrived at Ellis Island from Eastern Europe, and he stayed in a hospital on Ellis Island until he recovered, and Mm. then he was released to the rest of his family. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Catherine Benton Cohen, the author of the book, Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy. You uh, make this point that uh, in the early 1900s, so exactly when this commission identified immigration as a problem, not a question, not a discussion, but like a problem and something that had to be solved, that almost 15 percent of the U.S. population was born outside the U.S. That's a number that had not been seen in the years before that. It has not been topped since then. I wonder how you think that affected things, the fact that we were at this like high in terms of the number of people born outside the U.S. in America? Great question. So I think it cuts both ways. And I think it's an understudied aspect of immigration policy. And I'll I'll say more about that as we move further into the 20th century. So one thing I'll say is that we probably would have exceeded that percentage. We came very close in the mid-2000s had it not been for the 2007-2008 recession. I think it's likely we would have met that. So what's important about that is to think that the, the last decade is a similar percentage of immigrants in the United States as to a century ago. So that's an interesting thing because we think of the early 20th century as a time of you know great immigration and, and we can see some parallels today, right? Right. But um, Absolutely relevant because it concerned a lot of people, not unlike today. There were many communities, uh, especially sort of obviously the New York cities and the Philadelphias, yes, the Chicago's, but also hundreds of small industrial communities, right? Coal mining towns in West Virginia, iron and steel mining in Pennsylvania, copper mining in Montana and Arizona. Um, glove factories in in the Hudson Valley, you name it, right, that had large pockets of new immigrants, right? So communities were changing, not unlike today. And so folks were, quote unquote, old stock Americans were confronting new kinds of neighbors. And I think the expansion of immigration outside of its kind of usual places has some parallels to today. So mm-hmm. there was certainly that parallel. But let me let me say something about in contrast. As a consequence of the 1924 quota laws, almost all Southern and Eastern European immigration to the United States ceased. And there was relatively little demand um, from Western and Northern Europe, so the large quotas for Western and Northern Europe usually didn't fill. Okay. During the Depression, uh, immigration went down everywhere anyway because people couldn't really move. They didn't have, you know, it was a worldwide depression. Right. Then World War II, which is a whole other topic, right, of 
immigration problems, which we should, I think, leave aside here. But what's interesting is that as a consequence, exactly as the lawmakers had hoped in the 1920s, the proportion of immigrants in the United States fell precipitously and reached its lowest levels by the early 1970s, which means that it was at historic lows in the single digits. Uh, In 1965, when the Hart-Celler Act passed, which was, of course, the law that made the quotas fair. In other words, gave, I'm putting fair in quotes here, by the way, gave every nation in the United States the same quota and put Latin American countries under a quota system for the first time. And that was partly because um, by then the quota system was openly considered to be racist, right? That it favored some nations over others. But there's a way in which immigration had become nostalgic and abstract to many Americans because very few Americans were immigrants, quite frankly. So out of this commission, which thousands of pages of documents, years to put their work together. What were the recommendations that it came up with? And like, you know, how did this commission 100 years ago create in some ways the system we see today? couple of things. Uh, I like to say that the commission, I think, was one of the most successful government commissions ever convened, because almost all of its Uh, recommendations were turned into law eventually. So um, its number one recommendation was a literacy test, asking immigrants to be literate in their own language. And by the way, that included Yiddish, which was interesting. So not as anti-Semitic as one might assume. Um, So that was one. The other really important one was that this was the first official recommendation for some sort of quota system. So to underscore to listeners that there was no numerical limit on immigration before the Emergency Quota Act of 1921. Um, We did not have numerical limits on immigration prior to the creation of a quota system in 21-24 So those laws were passed. It took a few years. The commission made its recommendations in 1911. But those two uh, major pieces became American law and became really the centerpiece of American immigration policy, particularly the quotas, because as it turned out, the literacy test didn't exclude very many people. A lot of people were did have the limited literacy required of the literacy test. Um, When... Uh, the Dillingham Commission said, um, we're going to call this the immigration problem. Did that shape, do you think, broadly how Americans started to think about immigration? I just wonder, like, what effect the commission had on ordinary folks. We, we've talked about government policy. How did they shape what ordinary folks thought about immigration? Well, reception is always one of the hardest things for historians to measure. But I do think that a consequence of this very authoritative report at a time when people believed in authority and expertise, right? So in some ways, the trust in this commission and their expertise seems quaint today, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, we barely believe in facts, much less experts. I think it had tremendous influence. And the digest that uh, Jenks and Locke produced called The Immigration Problem went into five or six editions that were published and revised into the late 1920s. And you'll see the immigration problem referred to as such in rising numbers um, after 19. 
11. Mm-hmm. But I think the the thing that's key there is not just that immigration was a problem, but that it was a problem that federal policy must fix. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to underscore, we brought this up earlier, but I really want to underscore that this was new, that um, the literacy test had actually passed Congress in the 1890s. It had passed in 19. 19- 13, right after um, the commission made its recommendations and President Taft had vetoed it, Cleveland had had vetoed it previously, and then Wilson vetoed it twice. And this was because um, presidents understood that it was bad diplomacy to call immigration a problem, to target certain national groups that might anger our diplomatic allies Mm. um, or stir up trouble. And also going to this point about a high percentage of Americans who were immigrants or their children, right? Because realize if 15% of the United States are immigrants, then a very large percentage are the children of immigrants, Right, right? Right, right, right. Presidents also did not want to anger constituents, right? Many millions of whom were immigrants or their children. So the idea that immigration was a problem was um, potentially a a political and diplomatic uh, pitfall Mm -hmm. and also something that many Americans rejected. I mean, if you want to contrast 2018 presidential rhetoric uh, about immigrants, you don't need to go to Obama or Reagan or Bush or Carter. You can go to Grover Cleveland and, and what he said about this being a nation of immigrants and immigrants helped build this country when he had a veto message about the literacy test, it's really quite moving. Catherine Benton Cohen is an associate professor of history at Georgetown University. She's also the author of Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about immigration, specifically its impact on the American economy, we've got an article from Nature about the role immigrants and refugees play in a country's workforce. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. When the U.S. government began separating immigrant families arriving at the border this spring, following an announcement in April by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, we all started to watch a crisis unfold. Little kids, eight, five, two years old, being separated from their parents, many without any idea of what was going on or why they couldn't be hugged by the people they loved. There's been a lot of talk about what this does to kids, not just the day they're separated or the day after, but potentially for a lifetime, even if they're reunited with their parents. As I've heard these discussions, I keep thinking back to an interview I did last year with a doctor named Vincent Felitti. Felitti has taught at the University of California, San Diego, and founded the Department of Preventive Medicine at Kaiser Permanente. And in the 1980s, he made an unexpected breakthrough. He started surveying thousands of people to understand something called adverse childhood experiences, experiences like physical neglect and emotional neglect. There were 10 categories in all, including not just neglect, but abuse, parents being incarcerated, growing up without both of your biological parents, growing up with a parent who's depressed or mentally ill, and having a parent abuse drugs or alcohol. What Felitti found shocked him. On average, people who had one or more adverse childhood experiences grew up to be a lot sicker than people who hadn't. Some of that sickness manifested in a way you might expect. Depression, anxiety, suicidal tendencies, higher drug and alcohol use. But it went way beyond that. 
Here are some of the other problems they saw more of. Heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, diabetes, fractures, cancer, a number of autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, scleroderma, etc. And a major effect on premature death. We found that a person who had experienced any of those six categories uh, in their childhood or adolescence had a uh, shortening of life expectancy of 19.7 years, basically 20-year life shortening. Fellini became a pioneer in the study of trauma on kids and understanding how and for how long those events really play out. Not all of the symptoms of uh, toxic stress are behavioral. Nadine Burke-Harris is a physician who, like Dr. Felitti, has been at the forefront of thinking about those effects in patients and what we can do about them. Some folks have a greater risk of behavioral problems. Some folks have a greater risk of cardiovascular problems. Some folks develop autoimmune disease. And right now, when we look at the long-term effects of toxic stress, I think as a society, we only recognize mental health, behavioral um, consequences, as opposed to recognizing the full scope of the effects of toxic stress. Dr. Harris is the founder and CEO of the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco and the author of the book, The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. She says that we now have the tools to understand what stress really does to us when we're young. It's only been really in the last 20 years that we are able to see, for example, through MRI studies, the changes in the brains of children who are exposed to high doses of adversity, right? And the difference that it makes when they have nurturing caregiving. Burke Harris tells the story, the true story, of a 40-something computer programmer who had a stroke, and the hospital just could not figure out why. There seemed to be no risk factors. He was very healthy. He had lots of resources. But there were risk factors, adverse childhood experiences, which can more than double your chance of a stroke. So if you think about what's been happening at the border with kids being separated from parents, even if the kids are fed and clothed and bathed adequately, Nadine Burke-Harris says neglect could be a serious problem. Even for kids who are in neonatology wards, right? Uh, uh, Premature babies who are in neonatology wards, who are getting all the care of being in a hospital. Uh, Studies have shown that uh, for a long time, we didn't understand the importance of nurturing touch. And when researchers um, went in and, uh, and investigated the importance of nurturing touch on kids who were in neonatology wards, they found out that those kids who were receiving that nurturing touch grew 50% faster and were, uh, wow. had better neurological uh, development. And that's a big part of the reason why we've um, changed the practice of medicine to include making sure that kids who are in, you know, neonatal ICUs in, the, in these incubators are regularly receiving um, mm. nurturing touch. The idea that you can simply feed and clothe a child, right, but with, without giving them that nurture and caregiving, um, and that's adequate, is frankly false, and that's been demonstrated through studies. Hmm. And can trauma exist? Does it have to be ongoing? Or, like, if you were separated from your parents for a week or two, 
can that have lasting effects? What we now understand is that the cumulative dose of adversity, right, uh, is what ultimately has the greatest impact on health. And this is why this particular policy has been so disturbing, because clearly the children who are arriving at the border with their families have already likely experienced significant adversity. Many right, of the right. families are leaving situations that have been uh, dangerous or scary, and, and the journey itself is incredibly harrowing. So mm-hmm. at the time that the children arrive on our border, they are at an incredible place of vulnerability. They have a high cumulative dose of adversity. And when we take kids who are high, at high risk and then remove the ability of their buffering caregiver to help to regulate their stress response, that ultimately is what can directly lead to the toxic stress biology, which then puts these children's health and neurologic development at risk. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nadine Burke-Harris, the founder and CEO of the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco. She's also the author of the new book, The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. Let's go back uh, for a minute and talk to me a little bit about, like, how did you move from doing sort of the normal pediatrician stuff to thinking about these kinds of um, lifelong impacts? I mean, like moving away from, you know, vaccines and the stuff that normally the check-in kind of stuff you normally do with your pediatrician when you go visit the office to the kinds of stuff you think about now. Like what was the trigger for that? Well, you know, I was doing my regular pediatric practice when I finished my training at Stanford. I came to work in a very vulnerable community in San Francisco called Bayview Hunters Point. And I was seeing a lot of families uh, where there were high doses of adversity present. Many of the things that we um, heard Dr. Felitti talked about in the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, things like Mm -hmm. abuse or neglect or growing up in a household where a parent was mentally ill or substance dependent. And so what I was seeing in my patient population was that my patients who were, um, who, who were coming in with the, the most serious health problems, most often they were being referred actually by schools for ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, okay. But it wasn't just behavior, it was also health. So for example, you know, I'll never forget the day that I was in practice working with a 10-year-old girl who had terrible asthma. And I had been giving her really strong medications to try and keep her out of the hospital. And as I sat down with her mom to talk about her asthma triggers, right? You know, could it be pet dander? Could it be pollen? Could it be cleaning products? And I asked, you know, what is it we could be missing? This, uh, This mom said to me, you know, doctora, I noticed that my daughter's asthma tends to act up every time her dad punches a hole in the wall. And for me, that was really observing that trend, that my patients with the worst, not only behavioral, but also health and biomedical uh, problems were the ones who were exposed to the highest doses of adversity, really got me looking into the science of how does childhood adversity affect the developing brains and bodies of children. So let's come back um, to 
uh, in some ways what what really brought us here, which is the uh, policy of separating kids from families, which at the at the southern border, which is not happening anymore. But now we've got thousands of kids who have been separated. If you could take charge at this point, like what is the sort of best possible thing to do if you've got a bunch of kids who are understandably scared and um, yeah, I guess there's two populations. You've got kids who are are going to be reunited or have been, and then kids who are going to be apart from their parents for a long time. Let's take the kids first who have been or are going to be reunited, but were very traumatized by what happened. So um, there are a couple of different um, pieces that can happen here. For the kids who are going to be reunited with their parents, I think one of the things that's absolutely critically important is that both the child and the caregiver get intense support because we recognize that being separated from your uh, parent is a stressor. But Mm -hmm. as most people can imagine, being separated from your child is also a stressor. So Mm -hmm. when these children are being returned to their parents, they're also being returned to traumatized parents, Mm -hmm. right? And unless those parents are... uh, get support in being able to regulate their own stress response, it will be more difficult for them to be that Mm -hmm. adequate buffer for their children. Uh, At the Center for Youth Wellness, we work very hard to uh, equip parents with the tools to be able to be that buffer and to be able to manage their own stress responses. But honestly, that treatment, that intervention costs about $10,000 per child per year And it sometimes requires multiple years of interventions just to be able to regulate and stabilize these families. So we're looking at significant investments, even when the child is reunited with their parents. For the kids who are not reunited with their parents, then they're at significantly higher risk, right? And what we absolutely need is to make sure that they are getting the nurturing care that they need, whether it's through uh, some type of um, supportive fostering situation with a a nurturing and supportive caregiver. But typically, they're going to require multidisciplinary care, intensive care, and that will uh, be required for uh, a pretty long period of time. So if we pull back a little bit here from the kids and the parents who are clearly at the heart of this, for people who are just seeing hard things on the news, um, and you've been a doctor for a long time, you've seen people coping with tough situations, I wonder what your thoughts are on um, dealing with what's happening. I mean, I know I scroll through Twitter a lot. I see people who say they've been crying. It's hard for them to sleep. Um, I've seen politicians tweeting that it was hard for them to sleep. How can people um, deal with what they're seeing on the news? I would say recognize for folks who feel like they're really affected, I really strongly recommend that folks reach out uh, for uh, mental health consultation or treatment, even if it's a a brief intervention. I do think um, 
so that you know the evidence shows that things like um, regular exercise, getting you know at least eight hours a night of sleep, and having good sleep hygiene. So one of the things I recommend is don't read this stuff before you go to bed at night, right? Because mm-hmm. that's going to activate your stress hormones and it's going to uh, inhibit and interrupt the sleep process, right? So you know, turn, <laughs> turn off that, that uh, you know, iPhone or the news or whatever it is mm-hmm. for that hour before you go to bed um, so that you don't, you're not dealing with an overactive stress response or, or an activated stress response right before you go to bed. Um, that, that, that regular exercise is really, really important to metabolize the stress hormones that are generated. And I think for a lot of people, just pay attention. Notice if you maybe feel a little better after that yoga class or after that run or that swim, right? Because um, these things really do make a difference. Nadine Burke-Harris is the founder and CEO of the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco. She's the author of the new book, The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. Nadine, thank you so much. Thank you for covering this. It's been my pleasure. beginning of this story, I mentioned Vincent Felitti, the doctor behind the Adverse Childhood Experiences study. We've got more about him and the pioneering work he did on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. Once upon a time, when America was quite literally defining itself, a man named Thomas Jefferson started a sentence this way, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's something we've heard a thousand times, but when Jefferson wrote it, it was revolutionary. The prevailing view at the time, says historian Lynn Hunt, was that people were not the least bit equal, not along racial lines or gender lines or class lines. Hunt says, When it comes to class, people thought the lower classes, they did have emotions, but they were, she says, too brutish. They were humans, but they were closer to animals. Hunt is a distinguished research professor at UCLA and author of the book Inventing Human Rights. Their passions had got the better of their reason. They didn't have sensibility in the way that the superior upper classes did. So it was a deeply held view of the world that there was a kind of natural hierarchy. Uh, look, we're all loved Downton Abbey. That that was about that was about the early twentieth century, where what was good about the aristocrats of Downton Abbey was that they were beginning to see in the early twentieth century that servants were real people. Hunt says it's important to understand that human rights have not always been with us. Indeed, it was at the end of the 1700s that the very idea was being dreamed up. I talked to Hunt last year, but the moment she has studied so closely actually has a lot to teach us today. So for a few minutes, let's travel back to the 18th century to meet a woman who you might fairly label a celebrity, Madame du Châtelet. She was brilliant. She translated the work of Isaac Newton into French. And in doing so, she made a comment on Newton's work that turned out to be a major contribution to physics. She was also scandalous. She had a husband but carried on an affair with Voltaire. And she had a curious mix of views when it came to her fellow humans. Not surprisingly, she believed that women were entitled to a lot better education than they were generally provided. She argued passionately for more equal treatment. 
When it came to her own servants, though, equality wasn't even on her radar. Madame du Châtelet considered her male valets so lowly that she didn't think twice about undressing in front of them because, according to historian Lynn Hunt, she didn't think it was a proven fact that valets were men. People were used to living in what we would call highly deferential societies, that there were people who were at the top, there were people at the bottom, there were people in the middle. It was better to know your place. It was better not to push too hard. And the aristocracy, Madame du Châtelet, was one of them. The aristocracy was sort of naturally superior. But a revolution was coming, actually, two revolutions, which brings us back to Thomas Jefferson, whose statement about the fact that all men are created equal raised a very uncomfortable question. Can all people really be educated? Actually, I think we now believe, yes, they can, and that that's incredibly important. But that was not the idea before the 18th century. The idea was that some people should be educated because they were capable and other people didn't need to be educated because they were peasants. And why did they need to be educated? Hmm. Uh, You mentioned Downton Abbey before and the fact that, like, at that point, the upper class was starting to realize that these servants were maybe real people. Um, But you also saw in Downton Abbey that uh, people were willing to talk about secret things in front of people that were there and at the same time kind of not there. They were a little bit like uh, wallpaper. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that attitude persists in many ways for a very long time. What I found interesting about the 18th century was the beginning of a notion that's, that was going to cast questions, was going to raise questions about that entire vision of the world, that there's a natural hierarchy. I, I think that has largely fallen apart now, but you know, there's still the issue in our society, our supposedly terribly modern society, about whether immigrants who don't know how to read and write, who can't speak English... Uh, who seem very different from us, are actually truly equal. So how then do we get to that famous line in the Declaration of Independence that I quoted before, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal? Like, how did that happen? And how did we get to a point where someone would not only put that in writing, but also say it's self-evident? Like, obviously, you know, everybody knows that. Well, this is an incredibly interesting question. How could they say that these were self-evident truths? You you know, I think it's important to say that there's not one single answer for that question. There are some long-term developments like the rise of science and new ideas about what human reason can accomplish. There are some medium-term developments about how people live their lives, which I myself have paid a lot of attention to and think are extremely interesting and important. But there are also some very important short-term things that happen. The colonists decide they want to break from Britain. They need to have a rationale. Using the sort of tradition of British liberties is not the greatest rationale for being independent from Britain. And so the short-term thing of... What? How can we justify independence? And what's going to be the basis of the government that we're going to have forces them to kind of crystallize this whole set of longer term, medium term developments into a declaration, something that will galvanize opinion. Hmm. You also make the argument that part of the rise of people thinking, well, maybe everybody does have human rights around this time, is something kind of unexpected. Um, 
which is sort of the rise of the book, and not just any kind of book, but that people started reading and loving novels. You want to talk a little bit about like why that was important? You know, I the novel in general, but it, it's, it becomes especially important in the 18th century because that's the period when it really takes off in terms of publication and in terms of, of public interest. But in general, I think the novel is actually of an extremely fascinating form. It is still the case in the world that we live in that novelists can be subject to attack, to imprisonment, to being mm-hmm. banned. There's something about that form that drives authoritarian figures nuts. Mm-hmm. And this is extremely interesting. In the 18th century, it's not so much about authoritarianism. It's that you have the the increasing publication of novels. They get people incredibly emotionally involved in the lives of characters. That is, with people they are never going to meet because they're fictional. Right. So they're, right. In principle, they're never <laughs> going to meet them. And so they're they're learning that even, you know, an 18-year-old girl, the servant girl Pamela in the novel of that name of 1740, has emotions just like the reader has. Mm-hmm. And their readers include lots of men. It's not a female genre, hmm. which it's a little bit more so a female genre now than, than it was in the 18th century. It was very much a male genre in the, in the 18th century. And people could identify mm-hmm. through the novel mm-hmm. with people they were never going to meet. And I think this is a very important process of learning that everybody is psychologically similar. Mm-hmm. Well, and and you have, I'm guessing, not just different genders reading um, novels like Pamela, but also different classes. So you're having aristocracy devour novels about people of lower classes and realizing, you know, like you said, they they love people, too. They're, you know, crushed by things, too. Their children get sick, too, and all those kinds of things. Yes, and and I think it's really hard to grasp how significant this kind of psychological back and forth could have been in the 18th century. For me, one of the true proofs of the importance of this form is that the abolitionist literature, which only begins to appear towards the very end of the 18th century, almost always takes a kind of novelistic form. Hmm. So freed slaves, when they write their incredibly kind of moving accounts, what do they do? They are essentially kind of novelizing Mm -hmm their life experiences. And people identify, therefore, with this ex-slave in a way that they could never have possibly imagined identifying with slaves in the past. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Lynn Hunt, a distinguished research professor at UCLA and author of the book Inventing Human Rights. So Thomas Jefferson, who I essentially quoted from uh, when I read the Declaration of Independence, is now thought of as someone who did not necessarily uh, treat people equally. And yet he wrote this sentence that clearly everybody should be treated equally. Um, How was it reconcilable to him that he's writing this stuff? And yet, obviously, he knew he could look around and he knew he wasn't treating everybody equally around him. Right. Although to give Jefferson his due, because I think he's truly one of the greatest political thinkers that the United States has ever had, to give him his due, he was profoundly agitated on the subject of slavery. Yes, he was a slaveholder. Yes, he maintained his slaves. Yes, he had relationships with at least one of his female slaves, Sally Hemings. We know all of that now, but 
he, at the same time, was agonized about this. He lived in a slaveholding society. He could not imagine overturning it. He did, however, totally support the abolition of the slave trade in 1806-1807, which the British inaugurated and the United States followed. And he did argue in favor of abolishing the slave trade on the grounds of, of basically of human rights, that it's really not right to enslave people. Right. So. Even the slaveholder that was Thomas Jefferson was troubled by this. And, and that's one of the things I think is so fascinating about the 18th century. People make these statements like the Declaration of Independence or the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen in France about uh, inalienable rights and the equality of all men. They don't really understand what the repercussions will be of making those clear declarations. But one of the huge consequences of these declarations is that it leads immediately to a huge amount of discussion, both in the United States and in France, about, well, who exactly does that mean? Mm -hmm. What about women? Mm -hmm. How can we have slavery? Uh, what about servants who never have the right to vote in most places until the end of the 19th century? What about people who don't have property who are excluded from voting in most countries also well into the 19th century. So they have no idea that just saying all men are created equal and they all have rights is going to lead to a huge amount of debate and discussion that no one saw coming. Hmm. They weren't having that debate before. They have the debate after these declarations. Do you think we've come a long way in terms of human rights, or do you think people in the future are going to look back at us and think... Boy, you know, much as we look at Jefferson and think, boy, they sure had a long way to go. I think both things are true. I think mm -hmm. we have come a long way. Mm -hmm. I think that, again, once you advance rights, once a group gets rights who didn't have rights before, when you look back on it, you're like, how could this be? I mean, right. look, I'm a historian. I read a lot of history books. I, of course, was extremely interested in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. Even now, when I read about the way African-Americans were treated as late as 20 or 30 years ago, mm -hmm. I, I just, it, I, I'm kind of speechless. Mm -hmm. I lived through that period. Mm -hmm. I was in college during the 1960s and the civil rights marches. We were all incredibly upset about it. In retrospect, that, that we were right to be upset, but it, you, the upsetness only occurs at certain times and in certain places. It doesn't happen just because it's unjust. I interviewed a, a former history professor at Princeton, um, Nancy Malkiel, several yes. months ago, and she's written a yes. big book about this, this, this wonderful book. Yes, yes, about coeducation, right. um, particularly I think in the Ivy Leagues, but but in other uh, other places too. And um, the story she would tell from I think she started in the fall of '68 or '69 as a professor, like a very young professor at Princeton, and the story she would tell about what people would say to other people, what professors would say to female students was shocking. I mean, and this happened in her lifetime. She's not talking about like ancient history or something. I know. I know. <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of the one of the problems, of course, with those of us who are, are getting older is that we went through this period in the 60s of enormous changes and enormous discussion and debate and upheaval, et cetera. And we lived through certain kinds of changes, which you know, frankly, if we when we look back on them now, we're like, real. I mean, could this have really been true? I mean, especially when, when one thinks about, for example, the civil rights era, that 
you know, people were being hosed down and dogs set upon them and beaten and even assassinated because they said African-Americans should have the right to participate fully in our society. You're, you're kind of like, truly, could this be the case? Mm-hmm. But it was. Mm-hmm. It was. And it was, of course, also the situation for women. It's This is this is why what, what you said was so true. We look back and we say, how could this be? And yet we also have our struggles, which will come and which people 30 years from now will say, how could that be? Hmm. We tend to view human rights as mostly sort of a steady upward trajectory. Do you think in general that's right? My view is that it is very much two steps forward, one step back. Hmm. I mean, I I think right now, in my view, we're living in a time in which in the United States, some fairly large portion of the population is has been upset for a very long time about the kinds of changes that have taken place and this is their moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they'll actually be able to roll back the the rights that have been gained. Uh, at least I, I hope that's the case. But I think you can't have the expansion of rights and then just have people sit by and say, oh, that's just great. Because right. for some people, it's deeply threatening to change the social order of the South, for example, which is also in some ways the social order of the whole country in terms of race and African-Americans, has, it has been a staggeringly difficult struggle. And, and there have been gains. And when there are gains, there are people who are very unhappy about that. Hmm. Lynn Hunt is a distinguished research professor at UCLA. She's also the author of Inventing Human Rights, A History. Lynn, thank you so much for this great conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. I talked with Lynn Hunt last year about human rights. And you might have heard us mention an interview I did about colleges that went co-ed in the 1960s and 70s. We've got it for you at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Chloe Lemel Hay and Simone Migliori. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Carol Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.